Well, good morning. It's so good seeing all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and uh, turn to Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 11. And let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. You are the ancient of days. None before you, none after you. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the everlasting God. And you give strength to those who trust in you. And so, Lord, when we find ourselves in a difficult season, when we find ourselves in a world that is chaotic, a world that is unraveling, a world full of confusion, and a world full of disorder. Can you help us to remain faithful? Can you help us to trust in you? Can you help us to walk in righteousness before you? And can you help us to faithfully point others to you? Lord, as we get to your scripture Can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Lord, can you help us to understand your word? Can you help us to see your word as relevant to our lives? Let it not just be a set of information. Let it not be just a history lesson. But may the words from your word speak to us. May it burn our ears and be heavy on our hearts. May it call us to to look to you and trust you. Can you help us to see in the text who you are, Lord God? Can you help us to see in this text who we are? Can you help us to see in this text clearly the instruction and the hope that we have? Would help us not to get lost in the details and in the weeds, but help us to behold you. And Lord, I pray for those who are going through a difficult time, a difficult season who are overwhelmed in life, for those who are hurting, for those who are confused, for those who are angry and bitter, can you minister to them? Can you speak to them in such a way that they can walk out of here and say, I have experienced God? Can your presence be so evident? Can your spirit just fill this place and illuminate this truth so that we may behold King Jesus? Lord, I need help in this text. Can you strengthen me? And Lord, we all need help. Can you give us understanding? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We're in uh, Daniel chapter 11. Um, And before we get to Daniel chapter 11, I I think it's helpful for us to be reminded um, that when we enter the last section of our text, that's Daniel 10, all the way through Daniel chapter 12, we need to see this as one single unit. 
And, and so uh, last week, Daniel chapter 10, what that did is that provided for us some context of, of what we're looking at. So, so last week we saw that Daniel heard an unfavorable report. Uh, maybe he heard about how the people uh, of Israel returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it lays in ruins. They started rebuilding the temple, but immediately they were faced with opposition. And as they experienced the opposition, what was Daniel's response? What, what did Daniel do? He was grieving. He was mourning. He was seeking the face of the Lord, humbling himself before the Lord and fasting, asking the Lord to intervene. And what did the Lord do? We see that the Lord heard him and the Lord responded by sending the this heavenly figure, whether you want to interpret it as an angel or an angel of the Lord. Either way, the Lord hears, the Lord responds, and the Lord sends an answer. And I like to believe that this angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate son. That is Jesus before he took on flesh. And he comes to Daniel and he overwhelms Daniel with his presence. That Daniel, as strong as he was, fell dead and was just overwhelmed. And the angel of the Lord had to touch him three times to strengthen him, to give him words of reassurance. Daniel, you are loved by God. That's the context. Chapter 11, now we're going to look at the contents, the word that Daniel will receive. And then in chapter 12, we're going to see the conclusion and the instruction of the word. What is Daniel supposed to do? So as we get to chapter 11, in chapter 11, the heavenly figure appears to Daniel and he gives him a word of revelation concerning the future of God's people and the earthly kingdoms. And what we're going to see in our text, we're going to see four more kings from Persia rise and eventually they will fall and the kingdom of Greece is going to take over. But the kingdom of Greece, as fast as it comes into power and as powerful as it is, eventually it will split into four mini kingdoms. And then you're going to have in these four mini kingdoms, the king of the north battle and the king of the south, they play like political ping pong games. Uh, kings rise, kings fall, they form treaties, they break treaties. It's like days in our lives on steroids. Not that I watched the show. Between these two kingdoms going on and the people of God, Israel, find themselves in the middle of this political ping pong game. And eventually from the north, the contemptible king, Antiochus Epiphanes, is going to rise up and cause great turmoil for the people of God. And at the end, what we see is God is going to accomplish his purpose. God is going to deliver his people with an end time rescue from the dead through resurrection life. Now, I feel really guilty um, as I prepared for the text. And the reason why is because I like to read the text and go verse by verse. But here's the problem. We have 60 verses to cover. And it is an overwhelming passage. Scholars even believe that this text should not be preached through because there's so much detail and the historical accuracy. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to go through verse by verse and just overwhelm you with the historical detail. And we all know how much you paid attention in history class and all the names and all the dates and all the wars and all of that, how you've remembered to this day. And so what I don't want to do is just overwhelm you with a history lesson. And you're like, great, what does it have to do with me? But I also want to overwhelm you with all the historical details that's going on. So I find myself between a rock and a hard place. 
And so what we need to do is we need to look at the historical detail and we need to mention like the historical detail in this text is so great and so accurate. That's why liberal scholars and skeptic scholars look at this passage and say, there is no way that Daniel wrote this before all of this took place. There's too much detail. It must have been written by somebody else during the Maccabean revolt or even after the Maccabean revolt. Because the history of what's predicted was too accurate. So what are we going to do here? Rather than me overwhelming you with all the details of this text, we're going to read some of it, skip over it, cover a big part of it. But what I want to accomplish is in all of this, the details of this text, I want to show you the big picture. Here is the big picture. Don't get lost in the weeds. Don't get lost in the details of the text. Don't get lost in the historical accuracy. And if you are interested in that, it doesn't take much resources. If you have a good study Bible, on your own time, read through the text. Look at the historical accuracy. Trace all of that down. It's readily available. And there are some parts that's really not disputed. So I'll try to bring up the disputed parts. But by yourself, go ahead and do it. I want to encourage you to do it. It's an amazing thing to see the historical detail and accuracy that the Lord is predicting in the future. But here's the big picture, and this is the drum I'm going to try to beat, uh, to hit every uh, throughout the passage. Is this? Here's the main idea as we look at all the historical details. If you're taking notes, is this? Be overwhelmed. Not with the details, but be overwhelmed with the assurance of God's sovereignty and the meticulous guidance of this world. Like this is what Daniel is showing us in writing down this prophecy. All the chaos and all the kings and all the emperors and all the nations that are rising up against one another and all these great wars that are taking place and innocent people dying. Let us be assured that our God is sovereign over all of it and there is a meticulous guidance of this world. In other words, what I mean by that is not that God can predict the future because he sees the future and basically he's just saying what he saw, but rather what we're gonna see in our text is God's involvement in the future and what is happening among the nations as he raises them up to accomplish a purpose and he brings them down. Our God is involved in this is what I want you to walk away as we look at the application that if our God is sovereign and he is in control of the nations and it's not just a predicting of a future but his guidance and his plan being decreed what does that mean for us as the people of God so that's kind of the direction I want us to go to so let's look at chapter 11 verse 1 says this, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, that's the heavenly figure, stood up to strengthen him and protect him. Now I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven. 
but not his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to the others besides them. So right off the bat, in verse 1, look at God's involvement in human history. The angel of the Lord, the heavenly figure, tells Daniel, in the first year of Darius, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. And we're like, well, what does that mean? Who is Darius? Now, Darius is more than likely also Cyrus, okay? You had this kingdom, the Persian Mede kingdom, and so Darius was probably his Mede name, and Cyrus was probably his Persian name. And what did Cyrus do? What did Darius do if they're the same people? And the very first year, we find out in Ezra that he issued a decree for the people of God to come out of exile and return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. And what was this heavenly figure doing in the midst of it? He came alongside of him, he strengthened him, and he protected him. So in other words, what what does this imply? Remember the context of last week? We talked about what? Spiritual warfare. This battle going on. And even though we might not see with our physical eyes the spiritual battle that's going on right now, it does exist. Because here's what's happening. As God issues a decree... As God through his prophet is speaking, this is what's going to happen. After 70 years, I'm going to have my people return to the promised land. Who's God's opposition? Satan and his demonic forces. And what does he do? He is trying to oppose God, trying to frustrate God's plan and make sure that this plan does not work. And yet, what do we see in the text? That as hard as Satan and his demonic forces are trying to frustrate God's plan and oppose God's plan, he will never succeed. So here we see God's involvement in human history. God has used Cyrus to end the exile of his people, to bring them back. And in the midst of the opposition, God sent his angels to come and strengthen Darius, to protect Darius, to make sure that this decree has been issued. And in verse 2 now, we, we, we find out after Darius or, or Cyrus, three more kings from Persia will arrive. And the fourth king is going to be far richer and more powerful than all the other kings. And history records shows us these three kings. And I think this is how you pronounce them. Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius. And then the fourth king was Xerxes. And what he did is he provoked Greece by invading Greece, but eventually the the Greeks kind of stood up against him, resisted him, and they defeated him in the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. And that would be the end of the Persian Empire. And what does it show us? The Lord raised up the Persian Empire to do what? For his purpose, to bring his people out of exile back into the promised land. And then... They're done. And then we read in verses 2 to verses 3, and real interesting there, um, there's about a 150-year gap between verses 2 and verse 3. In, 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 in verse 2 and verse 3, we, we read about this warrior king, verse 3. Everyone knows him to be Alexander the Great, a mighty king who has conquered the known world with such speed and expediency and sufficiency 
and suddenly he dies at the age of 33. And I just find it ironic that historians have written volumes about Alexander's life. The Lord just gives him a verse. Why? Because the Lord uses him for his purposes. And then what do we read in verse 4? Exactly what took place in history. Verse 4 says this, as soon as he established his king, as soon as he's established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven, but not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides him. And what happened? That's what happened. As soon as Alexander died, his kids were killed, and they took his kingdom, divided up among the four generals, and those little mini kingdoms were never the same. Now, as we get to the next big section, we're not going to read it. I'm just going to cover it in full. If you want to make a note, again, you, you can write it. But verses 5 to verse 21 basically is describing the kings of the north that are Seleucus, who ruled Syria and Mesopotamia, and the kings of the north, Ptolemy, who ruled Egypt and Palestine. These two kingdoms, king of the north, king of the south, were doing battle, political ping pong. Judah found themselves in the middle of it. And this battle between these two kingdoms will last 175 years until Antiochus Epiphanes arrived on the scene in verse 22. And again, rather than me reading this text, giving you a history lesson that can take a lot of time, I want to draw your attention to the big picture of what is going on in our text. So if you in your own time read verses 5 all the way through verse 21, what are we going to see? What does this teach us about God? What does it teach us about man? What we see in our text about God is that our God is sovereign, that he is omniscient, that he knows the future to the smallest detail. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, you just like saying that thing. I just don't see it in the text. Well, the Bible even says that about God. Even the book of Daniel says this. Daniel 4, verse 17, it says, The Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. Even the apostle Paul, when he was in front of the Athenians, he says in Acts 17, 26, he says, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and he has determined their appointed time and their boundaries of where they live. All of these predictions of God's future, of the future that God is giving to Daniel, God is showing Daniel I am in control. I am not just omniscient knowing everything, but I am omnipotent, all-powerful. And what I have decreed will take place because I am sovereignly in control of all of this. And what we're seeing in this text from verses 5 to verses 21, the Lord is the one that is breaking and dividing. The Lord is the one that's uprooting and destroying and giving and taking. And these earthly rulers are serving in the hands of the sovereign God who is omnipotent and through his providential care. But not only does that text reveal that to us about God, what does this text reveal to us about man? 
If you read verses 5 to verse 21, really what we're going to see is man's depravity, man's pride, man's lust for power and possessions. In other words, man is never satisfied with the amount of power and the amount of possessions. They always want more. And what we see in this text is we just see one war after another after another. And as soon as they lose, what do they want? They gather more money. They spend more innocent lives so that they can have more power. And this is the story of humanity from the beginning of the fall. If you read the Bible, like what do we see? We see one war after another. We see somebody powerful come and they're never satisfied with their power. They're never satisfied with their possessions. They always want more and they do whatever they want, whenever they might want, and they do not cost, they do not care how many lives it costs. That was the story back then. That is the story even for us today. What do we see going on in Russia and Ukraine? You think these people care about the innocent lives that are being destroyed in the midst of it? No, they just care about themselves and their power. And somehow, I don't know how, but the Lord's sovereignty at work with man's depravity to accomplish his purpose. How those two fit together, I am not smart enough to explain. But what the text clearly teaches, our God is sovereign and man is wicked. And the wickedness of man never frustrates the sovereignty and the righteousness of God. Somehow he works in the midst of it to accomplish his purpose. And this will be the story of man continuing in his depravity and his pride and his hunger for power and possessions until King Jesus comes to make all things new. Now let's keep moving on. If you want to make a note, in verses 22 to 35, um, all scholars, there is not a scholar I saw debate unless they didn't even believe the the Bible is God's word, Um, but all scholars agree that these verses refer to the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes and his vicious persecution of the Jews. So again, it doesn't take much to do this. You can do it in your own time. You can read this text, verse 22, all the way through verse 35, and it's going to describe the events and the things that Antiochus Epiphanes has done. A good study Bible will give you the details of what he has done. And again, the point that this text is showing us, look at the remarkable historical accuracy that skeptics are saying, yeah, there is no way that Daniel wrote this before. This must have been happening during the time of the Maccabean revolt. And again, what we're going to see in this text, what does it teach us? Our Lord is sovereign. Our Lord knows the future, controls the future, and man is absolutely wicked. So, I feel really bad for skipping 25 verses more, so please forgive me. Now, let's read a little bit of text. Now, as we get to the next section in verse 36 to 45, now there is debate. Now, the question is, who is this text talking about and what time frame this is happening? So, let's go to to verse 36. It says this, Then the king will do whatever he wants, He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. 
And he will say outrageous things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the God desired by women, or for any other God because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God his fathers did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land and many will fall. But these will escape from his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent uh, people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries, and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of, of gold and silver, and over all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and Cushites will also be in submission. But reports from the east and the north will terrify him, and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. Now, in verse 36, if the previous verses was about Antiochus Epiphanes, in verse 36, we read about the king. A title we've not really read about. We read about the king of the north. We read about the king of the south. But now we read about the king. And so the question that we got to ask ourselves is, if verse 21 to 35 is about Antiochus Epiphanes, who's this king? And if we see verses 21 to 35 in chronological order of verses 36 to 45, then what it's almost saying is it's not lining up with historical accuracy. It's not really describing the life of Antiochus. It doesn't match up chronologically. So the big question that scholars are asking themselves is, who is this king? Who is this new figure that is being introduced? So real briefly, I'm going to give you two main views and then maybe talk about an applicational commonality between these two views. Um, to be quite honest, I don't know which one I fall. I see both and both make perfect sense. They can't be both, okay? The first view is this. Some say that verses 36 to 45 still covers the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, but rather than going chronologically, it's going back. Basically, it's re-describing the previous verses with a little bit more detail and a little bit more condensation in certain areas. And what they say is if you compare the next, if you compare verses 21 to 35 and 36 to 45, if you compare these two, you will see some parallel, which as we've read it, you're like, oh, that kind of sounds like Antiochus Epiphanes. There might be some parallel. That's a good view. Could it be? Maybe. I'm not 100% sure. Some say, no, this is not Antiochus Epiphanes, but rather there's a gap that exists between verses 35 and 36, and that this, verse 36 to 45, is a picture of the Antichrist, capital A, that will come at the very end. 
I do think both views have great points. I'm not gonna get into the views. Because, and, and I think personally, like, I don't know if that interpretation is gonna impact application. So if the interpretation is not impacting application that much, I don't think it's that important to fight over which interpretation is right. That's just my personal opinion. You can disagree and that's cool with me. Because look at the similarities between anti, if it's Antiochus or the Antichrist, we know they have a lot in common. Antiochus was a type of Antichrist that was a foreshadow of the Antichrist that is to come. And what, was, and what is in common with Antiochus? What's in common with the Antichrist? They both deify themselves. In other words, they themselves are claiming to be God. We see that in the text. Antiochus did it. The Antichrist will do it. And both of them or men of unbridled conquest. In other words, they're not satisfied with what they have. They want more. They want to conquer the world. That's true for Antiochus. That will be true for the Antichrist. Who is it? Don't know. But here's what we do know. What's going to happen at the end? What's going to ha- what happened to Antiochus? What's going to happen to the Antichrist? Look at verse 45. The last part of verse 45. So whoever they are, we know for a fact what's going to take place. But he will meet his end with no one to help him. So regardless of who it is, they'll meet their end. That's what we know. The Lord wins at the end. Now, you're like, okay, Neil, I disagree with you. We have to make a decision on the interpretation because maybe the application is the same. If we know they come, they oppose God, they deify themselves, and they continue with with this conquest of wanting to rule the world, and God God is going to give them their appropriate end, what does that mean now for the people of God? Like, like, what is it, like how are we supposed to live in that time? Well, let's look at verses uh, 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. During all this chaos, what about the people of God? Look at verse 1, chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. And those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So during the reign, whether it's Antiochus or whether it's the Antichrist, what do we see in verse 1? Michael, servant of the Lord, is going to do what? He's going to rise up and to defend God's people. Spiritual warfare is going to go on and Michael is going to rise up and defend the people of God. And this period, this time period is described as a time of distress such as never occurred since the nations came into being. 
which some people take that as the end time that describes the great tribulation. Other people take it, no, that was the time period during Antiochus, which was a really dark day. Some people say that's a phrase that's constantly used during the destruction of the temple. So for example, Jeremiah uses that phrase in Jeremiah 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 17, where he's describing the first exile and the temple being destroyed the first time. Now Daniel is using it to de describe the, the desecration of the temple again. And Jesus uses it in Matthew 24, 21 to describe the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So let's say we all disagree on the time period and who is it all about. What's the hope for the people of God? What's the application here? Look, what's the hope for the people of God? Look at the second part of verse 1. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book. Where else have we read that phrase, written in the book? Revelation. It's like the, have you heard of the book of life? Where our names are written on it. And if your name is written on it, what will happen? You will escape. But that doesn't mean you won't die because even if you do die, which leads to verse, two, 20, verse 2, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will do what? Will awake some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. In other words, what is the hope for the people of God? Bad things are happening. Hard times. What's the hope? Resurrection life. So if, you, if you're taking notes, here's the second theme we, we see, regardless of how we want to interpret this passage. And we can agree to disagree on it, and that's fine. But here is the hope for the people of God if you're taking notes. The hope for the people of God during this difficult time is resurrection life. That is our hope. That was the hope for the people of God in the past. That is the hope for the people of God in the present. That is the hope for the people of God in the future. So regardless of what time period you live in, that is our hope. Life is crummy. Life is hard. Rulers will come and destroy. And you are wondering what in the world is going on. What is your hope? Resurrection life. And why do we have this hope? Because of the promise of resurrection that was established by Jesus Christ himself. And the promise of resurrection will be fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. He has promised it, which means he's established it, and he is committed to fulfilling it when he returns. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 22, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of dead also comes through another man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
So in other words, because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, he lived a life we could not live. He died a death we all were supposed to die. He paid for our sins in full and he satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. And how do we know that God's wrath was satisfied? Because God raised his son from the dead, accepting that payment. And because of that payment that now is applied to us through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of resurrection, which means that no matter what happens in this world, even if we face 20 types of antichrist that put us in concentration camps and do unspeakable things to us and to our children, what is our hope in? Resurrection life. So even if you die, what's the worst that can happen to you? You're going to die. Some of you, your death might be more painful. But is death your end? No. What can you hold out for? What is your hope in? Resurrection life. And what makes that hope so great is who promised you that hope? Me? No, Jesus Christ himself. He demonstrated it. He is the first fruit. So how do we know that we will receive resurrection life? Because our king is alive. He is not dead. Now, we can imagine Daniel. I don't know about you, but if I was Daniel, I would be in the fetal position right now. The Lord just overwhelms him with his presence. He just gives them this detail of suffering and pain. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I can endure this. And yet the Lord encourages him. I will defend you. And if your name is in the book of life, in other words, if you belong to me, you will escape even if you die you will receive resurrection life. And so the question, I think a good application question is, is your name written in the book of life? Do you belong to him? Have you trusted him? Have you looked to him as your Lord and Savior, believing that he took all of your sins, that you've rebelled against God and he took all of it and paid for it in full and that God accepts you, not because of your behavior and your performance, but because what if Christ has done on your behalf? Then be encouraged. That is your hope. But if your name is not written in the book of life, here is the warning. Your life will end in death and destruction. And at the resurrection, there's not going to be everlasting life, but an eternal contempt, eternal separation from God. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Are you trusting him? Are you looking to him or are you looking to self? I beg if you surrender to Christ, put your faith in him, cling to him, let him be your hope, your joy, your strength. And despite how, in Daniel, how dark things appear, and despite in our lives how dark things appear, I don't know about you, there's just this unrest in my spirit. We live in some dark times. I just, 
more than ever before, I just see the demonic forces going on, not in the news media, but among the people of God. We see things we've never thought we would see. We hear about things we never thought we would hear. Like now, all of a sudden, things aren't funny anymore. Things are getting real. And you're wondering, when the world's going on? And yet, what do we have to be reminded of in the chaoticness of life? Our God is in control. I love, uh, it's funny, our call to worship. I don't know who wrote the call to worship, uh, but, but they quoted I, Isaiah 40, and we did the passage of 2131. In my notes, I had Isaiah 40, verse 15. And this is what, what it says. It says this, before God, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scale. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. In other words, despite how bad things are, despite how powerful some people seem, despite how hopeless the situation might be, what are the nations in the hands of God? A drop in the bucket, dust, speck, a little island that he just lifts up. Oh, how cute. What does that mean for us? God is in control. That as the nations are raging, Our God is in control. So what's the instruction for us? What do we do? How do we live? I think verse 3 gives us wonderful instruction. Look at verse 3. How do you live your life in the midst of chaos, knowing that God is in control, knowing you have the hope of resurrection life? Verse 3 says this, Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In other words, a way we need to look at those who have insight, those whose eyes have been opened to the glories of Christ, those who belong to him, who are no longer dead in their sins, but are living, that are made alive in Christ, that have imputed righteousness and are walking in righteousness, are leading others to righteousness. The instruction for you is this. Continue in Christ. Continue to walk in right standing before God and continue to point others to have a right standing before God. In other words, just follow the Lord faithfully. Don't get tossed to and throw by every winds of doctrine, every hearsay, and every theory. Walk faithfully before the Lord. Trust the Lord. Look to the Lord. As our call to worship said, That in our weakness, when we feel powerless, we trust the Lord because He is our strength. Follow the Lord no matter the cost. Trust in Him and the hope that He has given you resurrection life. Will it cost you your life? Yes, it will. But what do you get at the end? Resurrection life. To me, that's not a price that you're paying. That's a great trade. That's just a smart investment. You get something way better. Follow him faithfully. 
And I think this vision, this chapter 11, this is why I think we should preach through chapter 11, reminds us and should strengthen our resolve to follow God faithfully because he is our vindicating God. He uproots and he builds, he destroys, he restores, he tears down and he raises up. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that we worship. And this is the God that is encouraging you to say, hey, you have resurrection life waiting for you. Continue to remain faithful. Do not act like the rage of the nations. Be distinct. Be a holy people. And trust me because I am in control of everything. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that as the nations are raging and the evil one is plotting, you are in control. You rule over them. We do not have to fear. We can trust you. And by trusting you, you give us strength to endure. So Lord, can you help us? Can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to look to you? Can you help us not to forget the hope that we have, the resurrection life that is waiting for us, where sin will be no more, death will be no more, tears, sadness, suffering, pain will be no more, and we will live in your presence forever and ever with our glorified bodies, where faith will no longer be required, for we will see you with our very eyes. Well, that is our hope. But Lord, in the meantime, as we're holding out for that hope, can you help us to walk faithfully? Can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to be a distinct people, a holy people, and not conform to the pattern of this world? But be holy, because you who are holy have called us to live holy lives. And may we work hard at it, as we pursue you, as we chase after you, as we live in biblical communion with one another, as we faithfully point one another to who you are and what you've done.